Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges for America's military. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have James Stilwell from the University of Maryland. We're going to talk about the Paris Climate Accords. We also have Tim Watkins for the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Don't forget to visit the website at americadapts.org and think about subscribing or just subscribing to the show on Facebook. All right, enjoy the episode. Than climate change. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Hi, everyone. Just before we get started with James Stilwell from the University of Maryland, just want to make you aware that you now have the ability to subscribe to the podcast. If you go to the website at americadaps.org, you can go on there and there's a button that says subscribe and you can use PayPal to subscribe at the $5, $10 or $20 a month level. That means you get three to four podcasts a month, depending on what level you're supporting. The podcast will continue to be free. Please keep downloading and join the podcast, hearing from these amazing guests that I have. But if you want to consider subscribing, it would be greatly appreciated by me, the host of the podcast, knowing that the subscriber base is growing and um, I can continue to bring you a top quality project. All right, let's get started with James. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to America Daps. I'm Doug Parsons, your host. On today's episode, I have James Stilwell, who's the Program Manager of Climate Implementation at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. Hey, James, how are you? Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me today. We have, I think, multiple topics that I want to cover in this conversation. Uh, first of all, I want to learn about your program at University of Maryland, but then I want to talk about some of the things that you've been doing sort of external of UMD. I know it's part of your role, but, you know, there's the Paris talks and some of the trainings that you've done. But then we talked about having a conversation about how universities are approaching climate change and what are some ways that, you know, the next generation of students should be tackling this issue. And so I, I hope that's still what you want to talk about. Absolutely. Very excited to talk about it. Thank you again for having me today. and Excited to dig into all those topics over the next hour. Well, so you're at the uh, School of Public Policy, and yeah, just tell me a bit about yourself and how you ended up there, and I, I read an interview with you that you basically said you're at your dream job right now, and I don't know if that's still the case, but if it is, just give us some details on that. Oh, very much so. So I uh, am working at the Center for Global Sustainability, which launched launched on March 1st which with an event that Al Gore gave at our Performing Arts Center, and uh, it was just a big splash, and it was in the midst of uh, a busy spring for us as we were planning for the Climate Action 2016 Summit and Forum, which was the first uh, global gathering of climate leaders after the signing of the Paris Agreement, which had happened two weeks prior to that um, on Earth Day in New York City. And it was essentially to show that this multi-stakeholder model of climate action is still alive and well and is continuing to gain momentum after Paris. And what I mean by that is that if you may remember back in September of 2014, there was a climate summit in New York City in conjunction with UN Climate Climate Week New York City as they were having a meeting at the UN on heads of state gathering together to think, okay, what can we do to make sure that the Paris Agreement is as strong as it can be? And the big focus there was that we have this whole process that's run through the UN to negotiate among countries 
and decide how we're going to advance on climate, but wanting to make sure that that is something that happens throughout the breadth and width of society. So it's not just the government or the UN process, but that you have civil society, you have businesses, you have academia on board to do that. And, and that's what we're doing here at the University of Maryland is, is making sure that the academic and research community is pulling their weight and making sure that we are producing the best, most current research on climate impacts and ways to address it, both on the mitigation and adapta adaptation side, as well as to ensure that that information is delivered to decision makers and practitioners. So you have this continually iterative process because it, it's just becoming quickly clear that we don't have any moment to lose in, in implementing the Paris Agreement and want to make sure that it's as strong and as broad-based as possible. And it's very exciting. I mean, from organizing that event for the entirety of last year, I tell friends that I've gone from working for a campaign to working for a startup because now we're beginning this new center that's organizing all of the capacity at the U University of Maryland to advance climate initiatives, both here on campus, but especially working with stakeholders domestically, internationally, in all sectors to, to have as strong an implementation of the Paris Agreement as we can get. Well, you jumped ahead, and I'm going to have more questions <laughs> for you about the Climate Action 2016 and then also about Paris, but just right. – and I know it's all related with the program that you're doing there. And so I'm just curious, too, that what you're doing is embedded within the policy program at the University of Maryland, and you know how did that kind of come about? Because you know, sometimes the climate change – focus at some universities might be in the natural resource department. And right. I mean, you're sort of addressing it somewhat because you had these things kind of coming out of Paris, but I'm just curious a little bit more of the history. Yes. Yeah, so we're very mindful of at uh, University of Maryland in our new center that it is born of the policy school, but is really a resource for the whole campus. And then, of course, the whole country and, and world that it's not just geared towards the policy realm. And, and one thing that we found both at our own school and then looking at other institutions is that you might have different pockets of climate capacity around campus or just collectively um, in a given country, but it might not necessarily be organized in a way where you can collate all that information and then deliver it to the people that need to act on it as decision makers or practitioners. So for example, we have a really strong modeling, climate modeling capacity here at UMD through the Joint Global Change Research Institute. They've been doing cutting edge research through collaboration with Pacific Northwest National Labs on what are some of the on the ground impacts that are happening with climate and how are we modeling future scenarios based on different inputs. Uh, we have another great entity here on campus called SESINC, which is socio-environmental uh, resource center. And so that focus there is on how are we seeing the interface between what's happening in the sciences and then what's happening in the social realm in terms of how is this being translated to, to everyday people? How, what's the in interface with economics or with people's lived experience every day? And all of these different entities, again, I, I see UMD as sort of a microcosm here, have an aspect of climate to their programming and what we're doing with the Center Global for Global Sustainability is hoping to, to unify and organize those capacities and make sure that everybody's talking to each other so that decision makers aren't just hearing from a whole smattering of different voices, but they're hearing a very coherent message that touches on all these different elements of the natural resources and of, you know, meteorology and modeling and economics so that then they know 
you know, okay, what do we need for the next round of ambition in the Paris Agreement or what do we need to implement within our sectors? And and so I'm very proud to be part of that work at UMD. Uh, one thing that I've always looked for in my time in academia is, okay, how is this, you know, that, that question you've asked since you were little, when are we going to use this? And and that's one thing I really appreciate about what's happening at University of Maryland is that is that all this research and, and knowledge isn't just sitting on a shelf, but it's actually informing decision makers' processes uh, on climate implementation. So, you know, universities have institutes and they have, I guess, this public service component, which you just describe where University of Maryland is really taking a leadership role. But let's say you're a potential undergrad student or a graduate student. How do they kind of look at what you're doing there? I mean, is there the coursework? Yeah. So I guess from a student perspective, how do they kind of come into the program? How do you kind of pitch that to them? Right, right. Very good. And and that's where I would tend to to embed it in other areas that that I think today's students are particularly engaged and, and wanting to to see be part of their academic and extracurricular experience at a university, but might not necessarily immediately involve climate. I mean, for those who are already excited about climate, we have many ways to to include them into uh, programming and curricula. But uh, I think most recently, back to my role, actually, before I was working for the Center for Global Sustainability here, I was working with undergraduate leadership development programs. I was assistant director of a living learning program called uh, Public Leadership. And that touched on all the issues of the day in terms of how students can make a difference in the classroom and in their communities to, to grow their leadership capacity and to learn, you know, what are some of the best practices for taking what they're learning in a classroom and applying it in the community. And very proud that University of Maryland just launched. It's actually our neighbor here in the School of Public Policy, the, the Do Good Institute, um, thanks to a, a nice outside grant and a lot of hard work um, on the part of people across campus here. And that'll make us the first do-good campus. And what that means is that beyond just climate, be, you know, thinking about sustainability more broadly, but also income inequality, thinking about other issues of homelessness and educational disparities and and how that can really be advanced by students at the undergraduate level doing everything that they can to to make a difference. And that's one thing I, I thoroughly believe and find so much hope in, in all the articles we read about millennials and their commitment to save the world. I mean, I've seen it firsthand in the classroom and, and they're just hungry for this sorts of information and experience. And climate change is the way that I see myself plugging into that in my work. But then I also see students really resonating that, with that just because they think, Oh, okay, this is something that we need to work on as a society. And let's, let's roll our sleeves up and dig into it and, and not necessarily thinking always about the climate aspect but getting into it from the sense of this is a challenge that we're facing today. How can we help? Well, that's super cool. It's very exciting to know that University of Maryland just, I mean, I had no idea the scope of all the things that you were doing. Very cool. Yeah, yeah it's, that was just announced this week. So very oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think that might be a good transition of what you're doing at University of Maryland. I, I wanted to talk a bit about Paris. You went to Paris for the, you know, this, this I I don't even know the official title of it, but with all the climate negotiations that occurred with all the nations, maybe you could walk people through that. But you went and in what capacity was it officially as University of Maryland? Could you kind of give some background on that and, and what really was happening in Paris? Yeah, so I went to support uh, my boss's role at the uh, Paris talks. My boss, uh, Bob Orr, is the uh, special advisor to the UN Secretary General on climate. So he was there wearing his UN hat and 
and really getting involved in the weeds of the talks. And, you know, he's there in the pictures in the background when they finally announced that the agreement had been uh, had been reached. And uh, so he was doing all sorts of behind the scenes negotiations and meetings to make sure that people were talking to each other and the Paris Agreement was going to be as strong as possible. And and that if there are people that had reasons to think, okay, well, you know, I want to get this, make sure that this is included in the final draft. And, you know, what about this from our domestic consideration, helping to to make those connections, obviously not single handedly because it was such an undertaking globally. So I was there to support his engagement in it, make sure that he had everything that he needed and and that we were helping to advance the participation of his role, mainly from the my it's funny when, you know, people have these different hats. I represented the University of Maryland. So, you know, University of Maryland had its interest in making sure that after the Paris Agreement that we're moving forward with our work on the Climate Action 2016 Summit. So I, I was mainly supporting him on that. And then there's entire delegations that come from the U.N. Um, to help support on the logistics of making sure that the meetings are happening, making sure that everybody's happy. So, you know, you really appreciate at these events just how many people and how much collective motivation it takes to move something forward. I feel like my role was just a small piece of it and was nonetheless very exciting to feel like I was part of something historic and then to see how much other people were doing. I mean, you go to these things and you read all this news about, oh, you know, doom and gloom. And, you know, it's, it's so much pessimism. Sometimes it feels like around, you know, where we are in climate. But then when you go to a gathering of people from around the world that are doing everything they can to to help make sure that we have as strong of an agreement as possible, which it really was. I mean, it exceeded even some of the negotiators ambitions. It, it really gives you a lot of hope and optimism that we actually are on the right track. And, and I think Paris was really a historic, momentous time in the history of climate action. And I think we're seeing now the pivot towards implementing it. And, and that's what I've been involved with at the University of Maryland. I'm curious, you have all these people that are coming into Paris to talk about this, and I'm sure you were really busy, but what, what was the vibe on the ground? I mean, you're you're in these buildings, you're in these conferences, but even if you go out and about, I mean, was there really a positive vibe, or was there kind of a nail-biting vibe? I mean, what was your sense? <laughs> there, was a, there was a point um, where it was a little bit nail-biting, where you're wondering, okay, you know, is this going to be... Is this agreement going to come down to being accepted or not accepted based on should or shall being the final word in the text? And so, you know, you get down to the wire and you really hope that you, you are able to, to pass that final hurdle, which it ultimately was. I mean, there, you know, there are all these last minute deliberations, but, but there was this general feeling of positivity and, and there were two areas of the, the site where the, the conference was held. So there's the blue zone, which was where the actual negotiations were had and, and where you had all the heads of state coming together to, to meet in plenary. And then there was the green zone, which was sort of for civil society, academia to come together and, uh, and just show that they supported the work of what was happening next door. And so there you saw all sorts of exciting, innovative. I remember uh, they had bikes that were set up that were connected to iPhone chargers so that could, people could charge their iPhone cool. as they were talking. So it's all sorts of neat little things like that to show what a future can look like that is more carbon neutral and climate friendly. And and really, overall, it was it was a wonderful vibe. And, you know, when you have something of this scale, you often have a lot of parallel 
and overlapping convenings to take advantage of the fact that everyone's in town and everyone's excited. So there were things going downtown in Paris. There was a, a local leader summit that uh, really emphasized the role of mayors and subnational leaders in climate implementation and making sure people are, you know, all motivated to share knowledge and best practices on that and, and a million and one other events organized by civil society organizations, business organizations. So it was a very exciting time for climate. And again, it just, I think it exceeded a lot of people's expectations, which, you know, sometimes you just hope you get some sort of an agreement. And to get to this text where you say, you know, two, two degrees warming is the, the upper goal. And then with ambition for one and a half degrees, I mean, that was just outstanding. And I think that's a testament to the hard work that, you know, my boss and then everybody else in the UN system and civil society, other sectors did to make sure that people felt there was public momentum and political will for a strong agreement. Well, it must have just been an incredible moment. I'm just imagining that, you know, all these people coming together and you, you literally are there to talk about saving the planet. And on yes. top of that, you're in Paris. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're in Paris. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it doesn't get any better. No, it, exactly. And it's funny. Um, especially happening as it did, uh, you know, just a week after the Paris attacks, there was some, you know, there was a lot of consternation about it. People were thinking, not in the climate community per se, but just sort of publicly, you'd, you'd hear rumblings like, is this going to be canceled? Security is probably going to be crazy. And security definitely was tight, but it, I mean, it, it wasn't anything that, you know, it, you, you couldn't access if you had the right credentials. And I, I think that even that was further sort of almost in a way up the motivation for people thinking, you know, we're not even going to let a terrorist attack stop us. I mean, there was certainly, you know, a feeling of mourning that it had happened, but that still it, the talks had to go forward. And, and to be in Paris and to have that be the place that this was agreed to was certainly very exciting. You know, it, it was nice for the, for the couple of days that I had free after the talks to be able to explore. Uh, and I think that people will collectively remember that as, as sort of a, a shared experience of when we all sort of came together, like you said, to, to, try and save the world and and i think what better place for it save the world and get a great baguette i mean exactly exactly that's what's what's, what's what it's all about yeah <laughs> exactly well i'm curious like again on, on the ground was i i think i read that uh, they, they created their own little mini conference there but was there any element of climate skeptics there on the ground boy that's a good question i i mean there might have been i didn't encounter it in my experience i mean you know, largely you were dealing with people for whom that was just, you know, a non-issue that uh, I, I I think I might have read that there were some sort of protests in the city proper. Um, the actual conference was at a campus just outside of the city, but it it didn't really carry the dialogue in any meaningful way. I mean, once you were at the site, it was generally understood that you know, here we are to not even think about whether or not this is or isn't an issue, whether or not it is or isn't anthropogenic, but what are we going to do about it? So, yeah, it's a good question, but I think one that our our collective governance structures and societal structures have done a good job at pivoting the conversation away from that because it's, it's just no longer relevant. Well, so the big discussion is, you know, carbon mitigation, keeping temperatures at a certain level. But I'm just curious, too, that I know a lot of these discussions happen, but the buzz around mitigation versus adaptation. Is adaptation like it's it, 
its own separate tract, and those people are over there, and they're having that conversation, and then the mitigation people are over here. I mean, how, how did that work? That, it's a good question, and I will say um, in frankness that I wasn't in the immediate inner conversations to be able to, to assess where, you know, if this was a separate track from the other. Uh, I mean, I can comment on the final uh, draft and the final agreement that came out, which does include a lot of language around adaptation and and includes that in just the overall process of how Paris is going to be moved forward. So by the same token that every five years there's going to be a scaling up of ambition and a stock take and review of, okay, where are we um, as individual countries and collectively on meeting our targets that we set for Paris and then making sure that we're continuing to ratchet up our ambitions moving forward. It, that, that, that process has also been being applied in the agreement to adaptation. So making sure that there's strong support for resilience and capacity building around adaptation, particularly in countries of the global South, but really just writ large. And I, the, the immediate focus of the Paris Agreement I mean, they were, was definitely to, to get a target and to, to, to meet these, to make sure that there were mitigation goals that were collectively agreed to. If you look back at preceding COPs in Cancun, for example, in 2010, this idea of uh, national adaptation plans originated and those were established under that framework, which was a focus that has continued to be carried forward on how countries are developing plans around adaptation. So it certainly was included in the sort of general dialogue of Paris and is included in the final agreement, but it was so important uh, and the leaders of, you know, of the negotiators and the heads of state had agreed going into Paris that this is where we really need to get an agreement of, okay, how much are we going to limit warming by? So there are ways that you can plan for adaptation that have that sort of dual benefit of both helping to make sure communities are more resilient, but also that you're mitigating your emissions. So again, to that extent, it was also addressed. But I, again, I can't specifically comment on, on the inner inner chamber of what was being discussed if, it, if these were two separate tracks. But I am very happy to see that adaptation and mitigation were both addressed in the final agreement. Well, my prediction, and this is not a very profound prediction, is that in not too distant future, adaptation will get, I guess, more of the attention. Right now, mitigation is like the more popular sibling, and adaptation right. is. And I get right. it. You don't want to keep digging the hole, and we've got to get the mitigation thing under. But, you know, at some point when these impacts really just start impacting society, right. that everyone's going to be coming together, and we're talking about immigration and all these major issues, and I think adaptation will dwarf but again, it's like you got to get a handle on mitigation first, and so I, I get what this approach is. So yeah, absolutely, and it's interesting because I, I mean, mitigation in some ways, although you know very complex to get an agreement for it, is a little bit more straightforward. Whereas adaptation, you can look at it, and and you know, you mentioned immigration, and you know, you can mention all sorts of other effects. It sometimes might not be as obvious or clear that uh, some certain, you know, storm surge or political economic incident is related, is it is a result of climate change. And so in the same way that, you know, from your question earlier, that I think we've largely done a good job of pivoting away from the is or isn't climate change happening and who is or isn't responsible. I think that the more that we can develop a conversation around adaptation being in response to these effects that we're seeing, you know, society wide and, and 
landscape wide are tied in some way to climate. And so how can that be included in our planning around resiliency focused on climate in ways that we might not immediately think are related to climate impacts. So you had your venture to France while the mm-hmm. rest of us had to stay home. All right. <laughs> we thank you yeah. for your efforts. We appreciate it. But of so course. you're back home. You're, you're, you're back to the mainland. Um, and you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted to ask you a few more questions about this Climate Action 2016 that the University of Maryland hosted. And uh, you have some websites, and I know there's a YouTube page with a lot of presentations. And I'm going to have all these um, resources in my show notes so people can kind of find okay. those things. And, and if you have additional resources, share those with me. But if you could just – I sort of – I have the question of, like, how did um, Maryland come to host this event? And I'm assuming it's, it's from your boss played a big part of that. But, I mean, was there other – things that factored into like why did University of Maryland get to to host such a prestigious thing? Yeah, so we uh, uh definitely proud to f- emphasize our role in it, but uh you know, we we were in good company with uh other heavy hitters that c- it couldn't have happened without. So so we were definitely a co-host among uh several others uh including the UN Secretary General, uh the World Bank, the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, it was also, we had uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, uh, the Global Environment Facility, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, and we mean business. I, I very much feel like I need to give credit to all of them because it couldn't have happened without any single one of those playing a part. So we co-hosted with them, and certainly it was it was certainly serendipitous that uh, my boss had the, the dual role in UN and University of Maryland, but but there was also this sense that we wanted to show that this is something, this, this idea of climate implementation, making sure that the Paris Agreement is implemented well and successfully, society-wide and on the ground, that that's not just something that happens through the United Nations process. That's very important to how this all plays out, but that also in the United States Capitol, that there is clear support for making sure that governance structures and, you know, all of the various institutions headquartered in Washington are in support of ambitious climate implementation. And, and one very striking moment uh, that happened during that event was during, uh, towards the end of day two, the second and last day of the, the convening, Gina McCarthy sat on stage with Bill Nye, the science guy, hmm. for a dialogue about the clean power plan. And uh, and then he just asked her point blank, uh, you know, is the clean power plan in danger now? Because, you know, we had just had the Supreme Court stay. And, you know, is the U.S. at all in danger of, of not meeting its climate commitments? And she just unequivocally said, no, we are uh, very confident in the decision making behind the clean power plan and that this administration and the U.S. government overall is very supportive and excited about implementing uh, the Paris Agreement, the Clean Power Plan, et cetera. And as you may know, just this earlier this week, uh, the D.C. Circuit Court heard arguments on that very stay of the Supreme Power Plan, is of the Clean Power Plan. So interested to hear how that plays out. But I think Administrator McCarthy did a very good job of showing that that is important, but not the only um, or even necessarily largest piece, uh, certainly a plurality of, of the role that the U.S. is uh, saying is part of our climate target. But but there are many other ways in which the United States is on board for climate change and that was part of our submitted target to the Paris Agreement. So the, the Climate Action 2016 Summit and then the forum that we had, which was sort of like an academic conference the day before here at the University of Maryland, 
was really to showcase that, you know, here we are in Washington, D.C., and there's lots of support and momentum for ambitious climate action domestically and internationally, and also to show all of the different players that have a hand in making this be successful so that it's not just the UN, it's not just the University of Maryland, it's the academic research institution, uh, but that collectively you have all these different sectors of society. I mean, we mean business is a consortium of global businesses together saying we are going to aim for reduce carbon emissions and integrate that into our business models. And then you have the global environment facility, which, you know, does a lot of project funding for what comes out of UNF processes. I mean, very exciting to see all these different stakeholders coming together. I mean, Bloomberg saying, yes, cities are on board for climate action. That was important to, to put that flag in the sand after Paris and to pick up the momentum from that climate action summit in 2014, when you may remember in the streets of New York, you had that whole people's climate march of all these people very peacefully saying we support ambitious climate action. And that's now playing out. And it's really wonderful to see happen and gives me a lot of hope for our future on this. Well, it sounds like you played a big role in organizing that. But did you have a chance to really appreciate any presentation? Was there a favorite presentation? Did you learn something new? Well, I'm certainly partial to uh, uh, Wallace Lowe, our president, uh, UMD's president, and his talk on what universities are doing on climate action. Uh, uh, so would encourage people to check that out in the show notes when you um, post the videos. But okay. what, <laughs> I have to put in that plug, but it, it actually was quite quite an outstanding um, talk that he gave on um, what universities are doing and hearkening back to what we mentioned earlier about the, the strong role that students play in the current generation are going to play in both inheriting the work that we do today, but then and also carrying it forward. Um, but one thing that was interesting to see is, is all the different ways you're seeing these sort of new coalitions come together in ways you might not necessarily expect. And uh, the very final session, this was after McCarthy and um, Bill Nye spoke, was a collection of, you had Paul Pullman, who is the CEO of Unilever, and then you had young people from not even just millennials, but Generation Z, from 350.org, from other climate organizations that are talking about what youth are doing to uh, support ambitious climate action, and that how they are actually interested in linking up and comparing notes with the business sector to make sure that they are collaborating to move climate action forward. So starting to see those sorts of cross-fertilizations happen was a, a nice little surprise to come out of our summit. And I think you'll only see more interlinkages happen as we move forward and the further rollout of the Paris Agreement. So was the event well attended by University of Maryland students? Because you look at that lineup and, you know, all these sort of like environmental celebrities and was it really like a University of Maryland event? Or I just can imagine like all these people in D.C. kind of flowing up there to attend it. Yeah, it was really uh, the the latter. I mean, it, 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 our time to shine more with a focus on University of Maryland was with that Climate Action Forum on the day before the two days downtown. We hosted that here in College Park. And that was really, I mean, you still had a lot of great turnout from the Washington NGO and, uh, and governmental community presenting more what you would think of when you go to a conference or you go to a series of lectures talking about what are the various implications of what this means for the current research that's being done on, uh, on how we're going to move climate implementation forward and, and certainly focus in, in that on adaptation. There were a couple sessions on adaptation. 
but that was really a great chance for for us to shine and and there was this wonderful closing plenary there with um, Martin O'Malley, our former governor of Maryland, and uh, we had students, current students at the University of Maryland, and Kaya Chatterjee, who is the head of uh, U.S. Climate Action Network, really almost kind of bantering about, you know, it was the end of the day and everyone had had this very grateful day of, of lectures and talks and just saying, all right, let's really talk about how we're going to move forward on climate, both on campuses and then, you know, campuses linking up with state processes and then beyond that domestic and international processes. And so that was a nice warm up for the following two days downtown uh, because UMD had played important role in helping to organize the event. Uh, it was a nice chance for, you know, we had a whole stable of student interns who were actually very instrumental to helping make sure that um, the whole thing went off without a hitch. And it was, you could tell how excited they were to, you know, they got a picture with Ban Ki-moon at our opening reception and then just helping to make sure the behind the scenes stuff was running smoothly. So there was a good attendance by University of Maryland at the event downtown as well. Um, but it really was meant to serve the local Washington community, but also the larger global climate community. Well, I think that's a great pivot to universities in general and how they're addressing climate change. And I, I wanted to pick your brain, and I don't necessarily expect you to have all the answers. I, I hope this is more of just kind of a conversation between the two of us and your own exposure to climate change on campuses because it's it's a growing field. I, when I first really got involved with climate change, I was in Australia, and this was like maybe 10, 11 years ago. And I saw the first program on like adaptation. It was a master's program, and I, I was so fascinated by it. And it seems like in the last five years, American universities have really started to dedicate some resources to it. So that's what I want to talk about now. And, and you've chatted a bit about University of Maryland's, you know, your program, some of these things. But just curious of your interactions with other universities, and you know, the the and there's many issues here, like. I think universities have approached climate change and environmental issues. There's sustainability is a word that's used a lot, and that's almost outside the climate change world. You know, you have mitigation, adaptation, but sustainability was always its kind of own thing. But now I think it's kind of coming in a bit. And I mean, are there universities out there that you think, all right, they have a great program because they're doing X, Y, and Z? And you, let's just park the fact that University of Maryland's the best program, and you just, you know, let's just not go there because we understand that already. Sure. But if you have thoughts on other programs, or you know, even at University of Maryland, do you guys have sort of, you know, mid to long term goals of where you want the program to go? Right. So, yeah, all very good questions. And there are a, a number of different levels at which engagement is happening on this. And thinking back to something you had mentioned to me uh, in, as we were preparing for this, this program at uh, North Carolina State, which is all about, uh, you know, getting a certificate essentially on climate adaptation preparedness and and very impressed by that program. And then also, thinking about uh, what's happening through the coming together of different universities. Back in November, I believe it was, uh, it, in pro trying to build momentum for the Paris Agreement, there was this American Campuses Act on Climate Pledge that was put out by the White House, which was meant to sort of draw universities together and say, we commit as campuses and then collectively to do everything we can to support ambitious action on climate. And uh, and then just the other day, and I'm seeing 
a lot of this stuff come out from different levels of engagement. Uh, in addition, that that was from the White House. But another thing that just came out the other day was this. Oh, let me. It was uh, educators' commitment on resilient design, um, and this was uh, a, a White House pledge, another White House pledge that's really focused on this question of adaptation and resilience. So giving a chance for universities to sign on to training the next generation of architecture, engineering, urban planning, and construction professionals to prepare for extreme weather events and climate change related events uh, to make sure that we're geared up in that. And, and so I think starting to see those sort of nationwide commitments come on board sponsored by, you know, the White House is, is, is very exciting. And then you're seeing also at sort of a, a association level, the, the NGO level, one thing that especially sticks out in mind is uh, this organization called Second Nature, which grew out of this American college and university president climate commitment, which is a few years old. And that's where somewhat similar to, but uh, in some ways more extensive because it had this whole institutional infrastructure uh, behind it of an NGO, similar to this American campuses act on climate uh, has since evolved into this second nature commitment. And very happy to see that in the last year, that commitment, which was largely focused on before was largely focused on mitigation targets and reducing carbon footprint and, um, you know, trying to replace um, fossil energy with renewable energy. It, there's now essentially two parts to the commitment. One part is focused on mitigation and the other is focused on resilience. And uh, and that's new within the past year. Uh, and you already see several signatories to to the resilience component. Uh, so things like that. And then. Um, uh, I was also recently looking at Cornell University. They have a climate, a climate adaptation plan, which specifically includes or a climate action plan, which specifically includes adaptation and resilience. Um, a lot of universities nowadays, maybe probably most, have climate action plans. But I, as you know, as been the case, which is wonderful, they're more focused on meeting mitigation targets and energy and emission reductions. Uh, and now you're starting to see adaptation planning for the immediate campus and local community. University of Maryland has been in talk, discussions about how to incorporate that further into our programming. Uh, but there are, I think, other national models that we can borrow from as we gear up our resilience and adaptation planning. My other alma mater, Harvard University, where I went to undergrad, also has um, a, a nice focus on adaptation in, in their sustainability plan. So sometimes it might fall under different uh, semantic uh, vocabulary. You know, it might be called a sustainability plan, a climate action plan. But most campuses nowadays tend to you know, they, they can't not think about this stuff, both in terms of what their students want, what their stakeholders want, but also what their immediate communities need to make sure that we're prepared for climate impacts. Well, that that was my question was, you know, you see these efforts on campuses to divest from fossil fuels. And yeah. why aren't there initiatives to do adaptation? And it sounds like there are, there is. So that's, yeah. that's very encouraging. And it's probably, you know, a university by university approach. You know, the, you mentioned North Carolina State and the program that they offer. And I find it curious. I, I would like to potentially talk to some of these places that, you know, let's say it's a, a, a hostile political environment, especially at the state level for some of these universities. And I'm just curious, you know, how difficult it is because, you know, you have to get funding to put these programs on and it, it, it might get a little tricky in some states. So I, I'm assuming it'll roll out kind of unevenly. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where this whole multi-stakeholder approach to climate implementation really is 
you know, the, the next wave of how we're going to make this all work. Uh, here in Maryland, I mean, we're one of the most, you know, environmentally forward thinking nation or states in the country. I mean, we're a small state, but we are very much in favor of, you know, you know, including this certainly at the university level, but then, um, statewide. I mean, I'm very proud of, uh, our, our general sort of planning around climate and environmental issues, but, you know, there was some concern a couple of years ago when we got a Republican governor, Governor Hogan elected, and he's actually been been great to partner with and connect with on these issues. And and sometimes it might not be through the immediate lens of, all right, let's talk about this from the standpoint of environmental or sustainability issues, although that certainly is important um, to him. But but maybe, you know, how can we frame this as a business opportunity, you know, so that companies are are really seeing that switching over to less emissive more renewable technologies is actually better for their bottom line and how do you how do you plug into that way and so that's what's exciting to me is that you know if you change the conversation towards okay what does the person across the table from you or sitting next to you want to see and from from their perspective and what their stakeholders are are demanding that can dock into any given interest on climate mitigation or adaptation planning. So, so it's sort of, you kind of focus, you approach it from all different angles, but my sense is that's how we're going to move forward in not seeing these necessarily as these hostile environments that, you know, it's going to be impossible to accomplish anything, but almost getting creative about how we're going to do this sort of have co-benefits emerge that, you know, you might not have first thought of when you're just thinking from the climate lens. Well, here's a question for you to give your best professional advice. I look at how I came about into adaptation, and a lot of people in natural resources, they I think they actually were quite early uh, adopters of adaptation thinking. But our background, you know, ecology, environmental science, you know, conservation biology, and it, there's it's almost this haphazard approach how you got to climate change. And these are mid-career people, and you know. What would you recommend? Like, you know, younger people have a lot more choices now when they get to universities when it comes to climate change. But let's say you're mid-career kind of person and you're doing a bit of climate change, but would you recommend that they go back to school? Should they go back and get a master's? Or, I mean, is is the situation at the universities robust enough? You know, yeah, of course, yeah. of course you're going to say robust enough, but do you, <laughs> you know what I'm getting at? It's just like, no, I do, is yeah. it, has th- have things changed enough that they could really benefit and the outcomes of their work benefit to go back to school? Uh, certainly. I mean, I, if, if people are interested in that, I think there's, we would welcome them with open arms at universities. And there's certainly, you know, a great many programs across the country, as we've just discussed for people to dock in that way. But, but I don't necessarily think it needs to be, you know, that people need to go to that degree, um, and, and, you know, take that time off and, and, you know, totally shift course to be able to, um, work more in the climate space. Uh, I think there are, and starting to see these multiply now many different ways that people who might even just have like an extracurricular interest in working on climate that can, can really scale up their ability to, to do meaningful work in the space. And, uh, I think when I first started, cause uh, as you mentioned, you know, my background is, more on um, conservation biology, although, um, you know, I did also get a degree in um, uh, environmental policy here at the University of Maryland and certainly touched on climate, but wasn't the exclusive focus. So you sort of come out of one of these programs and think, oh, my gosh, I want to fix all of it. Where do I start? 
And uh, I think my sort of particular aha moment on climate happened a couple of years ago, actually, when I was teaching a class of students that wasn't particularly focused on climate, but was just, again, sort of broad based sort of how do we grow students leadership capacity around all these different issues. And and you realize that that especially after sort of in 2010, when we had the Senate and House, uh, the Senate bill fail on, you know, we were trying to do cap and trade and, and other congressional action on climate, that climate change sort of f- slipped down the national agenda in terms of what people thought was important and, and not in the climate world, of course, but, but I, I saw how that played out in the classroom of students thinking that, you know, if they were doing these sort of individual actions that we all hear about, like recycling more, or in getting more fuel efficient cars, then, then we're all doing our part. And I, those are all certainly important, but, but there was, there, I, I wasn't seeing as much of a sense that this broader based institutional approach, which is what's going to get us there. I mean, we really need to have economy wide transitions to be able to, to do what we need to do, um, for, um, meeting our climate targets. I uh, wasn't seeing that as much sinking into sort of at least the college students that I was engaging with. And so then I thought, okay, what can I do to be more of an effective sort of agent of change on this? And, and so to loop back after a broad tour, um, to your original question, happened to see that the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is actually a Quaker organization, um, was sponsoring a lobbying weekend on, um, specifically on climate change. They do one every year and that year it happened to be on climate change. And they were focusing on from the standpoint of faith communities and what we can do to, um, to, for this term called creation care, how we can advance creation care and, and then engaging with folks in that way. And of course, you know, you probably know we have a very, climate-friendly pope nowadays and his recent encyclical that is, you know, very much supportive of ambitious climate action is just another example of how you're seeing these sort of unconventional ways that um, communities are are participating in um, climate action and implementation. Another way that immediately comes to mind, and of course, I'm sure there are many others, recently attended Al Gore's climate reality training. Um, they had it down in Texas as a sp- very strategically um, chosen because Texas, um, Houston, although it may be also thought of as sort of the capital of the fossil fuel industry, is also a burgeoning hub for wind and solar. And uh, starting to see that, you know, that's a three day training that, you know, anyone can apply for and attend. And as long as you get yourself there, everything else is covered and they just give you a crash course. And, you know, here's how you communicate to different audiences who might not always be receptive. And especially if you don't necessarily come from a climate background to um, engage with, you know, your local Elks Lodge or to go to an elementary school classroom or to talk to the Chamber of Commerce on um, how we can be more ambitious in our climate action. So always happy to encourage people who, you know, especially mid-career are interested in pursuing more coursework and getting perhaps a degree in climate or sustainability or environmental policy. But uh, but there are many ways that, that actually don't take much of a commitment for people to very quickly train themselves up and be sort of emissaries of change in their own communities. Well, we have to wrap up soon, but I, I had a couple more questions, and I'm just curious, too, if you have interactions with employers. Like Occasionally, you'll see job notices, and, and I think employers who are dealing with resilience and adaptation, I think some of them are still trying to figure out exactly what they're trying to do, too, and you see some of the position descriptions like you know, 15 years of adaptation. Some of these things don't even exist, and I think 
they're yeah. struggling to actually define what adaptation needs they really, uh, I guess, are trying to recruit because a lot of these, you know, maybe government contracts that they're trying to do. And have you communicated with potential employers or saying, well, we need these kind of students? Right. Yeah. Good question. Um, I think back immediately. So I, I will say that um, I personally have not done a lot of that interface. I mean, we have connected with the business community in general, sort of talk about uh, what their needs and interests are for uh, climate and mitigation and adaptation. But in, in terms of how that plays out in students that they're recruiting, uh, I do remember one particular anecdote. I wish I could cite the source off the top of my head, but that it was this is sort of this great consensus around in this one study that was done for um, of employers or survey. You know, you have two candidates side by side who are both, you know, hypothetically equally qualified. And then one has had training on sustainability and, um, you know, what we're going, how that can be incorporated into, uh, business plans or into professional, uh, processes. And hands down, the employer would take that student. That that is, is very much something that's on their radar as wanting to recruit against. It's a very good question. I mean, as far as, as that relates to, Adaptation, um, just speculating here, not backing this up with any hard data, but it, it might be a similar situation where it might not be framed in the sense of this is adaptation for climate, but it might be around how do we make communities more resilient to handle some of the impacts we've been seeing lately that might be related to public health or might be related to weather events. And I think that, again, the more the more we can think of these impacts as being connected to climate, the more it might help frame that for both employers and then, you know, decision makers and policymakers to, to connect that also into the conversation on mitigation and just climate adaptation and climate implementation in general. I think that's some amazing advice for some employers. James, I have to wrap this up, but I'd like to let uh, my guests have the last word. And so, you know, if you have recommendations or just, you know, what do you want to share? I don't know if you're what audience that you're thinking about, prospective students or climate professionals out there, but please just share any last thoughts with the listeners. Great. Thank you so much, Doug. Yes. Yeah, so a couple, couple things here. Um, first is this sense of engaging in sort of a two-way education. I remember when I, when I concluded a class one spring where we had talked about all these different issues of the day. And I, re I remember talking to my students and we had talked about climate, but we also talked about homelessness. We had talked about human trafficking and, and saying to them that, you know, I feel like if the student, if the teacher isn't coming out of the course feeling like they've learned as much as the student, then, then somebody's not doing something right. And I, and, and every class of, of students that I've taught or been connected with, I've always felt that because you, you tap into all their energy and all the specific ways that they're connected, um, in their communities or, or their constituencies. And, and it's just, it's this two way process of both learning and inspiration. And, um, think of that both at the university level, but then also as we engage, you know, at national and international levels, making sure that um, we're connecting with uh, voices from the global south and voices in local communities that, you know, as we're trying to build out the, the sort of institutional governance framework globally for um, ambitious climate action, that we're always making sure to be in touch with. And this very much plugs into the adaptation piece of, of how this is being experienced and felt in people's real lives and local communities. Um, you know, there's this, there's this, uh, little phrase that says, you know, you often 
here of uh, southern communities or low-income communities being impacted first and worst um, by by climate change. And so we always have to make sure that we're engaging them in these conversations. Um, and that's really where the rubber meets the road. Building off of that, sort of, I, I think, really seeing adaptation and general sort of climate implementation writ large is actually a really cool opportunity. And I think specifically, I went to a, a luncheon the other day that was hosted by the Danish embassy, and it was on uh, engagement and collaboration between Copenhagen and Washington, D.C. for climate implementation. And uh, there was an architectural firm there that was based in Denmark uh, that gave a presentation on this new project called the Dry Line in Manhattan. And it's a response to uh, Hurricane Superstorm Sandy and specifically building essentially a flood mitigation wall around uh, the island of Manhattan. But rather than just putting up this awful, you know, six or 10 foot or however high concrete wall, how do you build it in a way that actually has all these wonderful co-benefits for community? And so the firm, you know, engaged local voices and asked them what they want to see in community in the community. And, and you can look online for the plans of this. And there's this very impressive video of, you know, there's, it's going to create more green space. It's going to create more parks. It's going to create more chances for communities to come together and have social interaction. And, and that that's actually really a wonderful way to, you know, we have to build this infrastructure. How do we do it in a way? That's that's actually not something we, we feel like we have to do, but that we actually are excited to do and we can get the infrastructure right, not just from climate um, adaptation resiliency standpoint, from but from all these other social and economic and environmental benefits standpoint. And then the last thing I would say, because uh, we are uh, what less than 40 days out, is to very much encourage people to vote on November 8th. That's something that we can do um, to, to very much address um, the climate challenge, adaptation, mitigation, to make sure that um, we keep the Paris Agreement strong. Those would be my top three recommendations. I, I really appreciate uh, the chance to share it and, and just the chance to participate today, Doug. Well, I have some amazing guests on this show, but it, it really makes me feel great that people like you are out there, James. I, we need people like you to keep doing what you're doing, and you, you seem like very excited about what you do, and I think you're bringing a lot of really cool things to it. And so, yes, please keep it up. It, it just, it's very exciting work, and I think bridging some of these things with mitigation and adaptation, we're just doing that right now, and you're, you're at the, yeah. in the middle of it, so please keep at it. Thank you. And you keep up the good work, too, Doug. I think, you know, the important thing is to make sure that people know that this is happening, to communicate it to different audiences. So thank you for all the great work you're doing. And just for listeners, I'm going to have on the show notes uh, many of the things that I mentioned in the show, and I'm going to ask James to send me any additional things. And so we'll just have that on a website. I also want to say that James was on this YouTube debate with a climate skeptic, which <laughs> makes for very entertaining watching. And so I'll include those in the show notes, too. Um, it was a bit of a throwback, but uh, it was yeah. very entertaining to watch. And <laughs> on that note, James, good luck, and I hope we stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank and you so much for having me today, Doug. All right, everyone. Goodbye. Until next time, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hey, welcome back, everyone. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. It's your favorite time of the week, the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour with Tim Watkins. Tim. Are you hey, out Doug. There? Hey, how you doing? It's good to be back. Well, great to have you back. Um, what are you drinking? <laughs> so I'm drinking something I've never heard of before, and it sounds funny. It sounds like it's something out of Car Talk, but it's called the Stump Jump, and it's <laughs> like like the stump the chumps on Car Talk. But uh, yeah, it's a 
it's a blend of three red grapes, and it's Australian, vintage 2012. And I'd never heard of it before, but it was for sale in my local shop. Thought I'd give it a go, and uh, I just realized, Doug, actually you and I both have some experience in Australia. So cheers, mate. Good on you. Um, 2012, that's probably the the most aged wine that we've ever uh, had on on the show, so you're you're classing it up. So I'm drinking a Norte uh, Vino Verde, and I could not find the year anywhere on the bottle, and I don't know what that means. So um, it's fine. It's very fruity, but uh, it's Portuguese wine, but there was no year that I could make out, so... Let's assume it's 21st century, though. All right. It's, it's nothing too old. Well, anyway, people know what we're drinking as we jump right into this. So this week, in honor of the presidential debate that's happening tonight, and so there's going to be a delay when you hear this. The second debate, uh, the presidential debate, will have already occurred, and most people probably figured out America Daps really isn't a political um, podcast, not really into endorsing or saying a heck of a lot about uh, politics on the issue. It comes up once in a while, but we want to talk about the debate and it's a town hall debate. And so I wanted to ask Tim, like if he was one of those people in the crowd standing up talking to Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, what kind of questions would he ask related to climate change? And so, all right, Tim, if you got, you know, a couple in in your pocket, what, what would you ask? Oh, good, good, good. So, uh, there's an organization called Science Debate, which has been around for several years, and they try to get the candidates, presidential candidates in particular, to debate scientific issues because, of course, so many of the problems that we face in our world today are rooted in science, and the solutions have uh, major scientific components. So it's important that um, that candidates talk about their views of science. So the question that I would ask in the audience, I don't know that I would limit it to climate change, but maybe if I'm standing up in the audience in front of the cameras, I would just out of being sensitive to time. But I think it would go something like this. Um, I would say that major problems such as climate change that we are faced with uh, have you know real science behind them, and the solutions have science behind them. And I would say neither of you candidates is a scientist, and neither of you has really strong backgrounds in science, according to the resumes that they make available on their websites. And so it would be important that if they were elected to office, they would need to consult scientists. And I would ask them what scientific bodies they would consult on a regular basis, what advice would they seek from those scientific bodies and in general what would be their approach to incorporating scientific reasoning and scientific information into their decision making and their policies that's pretty good um it would it would be quite the challenge to see what they would say to that because there's different layers to that but i guess you're looking for the signs that they even even though they're not scientists that they have the skill set to to approach the issue of scientists, science overall. So, no, it's yeah. a good question. And I also think that in that kind of venue, it's important to move beyond the, the polarized, you know, debate about climate change. Is it real? Is it a myth? Do you believe in it? Uh, don't even acknowledge it. Don't even open that question, but just say, uh, you know, how would you bring science into your administration? 
Uh, I think that's a great question. And if I had to sort of stay focused on adaptation, I was thinking that's a real tough one. It's still a complex subject to just bring up to people who are in the field. And so you're talking to two presidential candidates. But instead of saying, what are you going to do about climate change? Just, you know, put them on the spot to kind of see what creative thinking they have of like, you know, how, you know, what are the steps that we need to take to adapt to climate change? And it's sort of an open and ended question and see do they respond to it as a like mitigation they might not even understand about adaptation and i'd be more curious if they would even make the pivot to you'd probably maybe hear hear them talk about resilience and such but just try to get a sense of do they even understand the concept sure and i think another question that i would ask uh if if that one didn't go over (laughs) which it probably won't but i think another question i would ask would be um you know, Obama has uh, issued orders to federal agencies and rules that require adaptation and policy. And I think I would ask the candidates if they were president, would they continue those uh, those policies in office? Would they replace them with something more ambitious in terms of adaptation and mitigation, or would they replace them with uh, something less ambitious and and why? That's good, too. And if I had my dream question, it'd be something along the lines of, okay, some of the scientists are saying we're going to get five, six, seven feet of sea level rise. That means Miami is gone. Could you give me your 10-step process for abandoning Miami? Go. <laughs> yeah. But that... I don't think they'd be comfortable answering that question. No, I don't think so. It's not a very positive question, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Florida's a swing state, so any mention of Miami, I think, uh, has to be interpreted by the candidates in light of that. That they see a future with Miami, like implying that it's not going to be there. That's probably not going to go over well with voters there, so I get it. Yeah. You know, there was something else out in the news this week about uh, I mean, it's not news, really. People have been talking about this for a while, but I came across yet another article about how the military uh, is taking climate change very seriously. They're uh, implementing all sorts of adaptation and planning actions in direct response to climate change. And of course, they have been for a long time and they consider climate change a major threat to national security. I think it would be really good in this what's left of this presidential campaign and and frankly, even among House and Senate and down ticket races for people to expect and ask candidates about climate change, not so much in light of you know, impacts in general or adaptation, perhaps, but in terms of things like uh, military readiness, national security, uh, and the sorts of you know frames that uh, people, that candidates talk about all the time uh, on the campaign trail, because they're clearly not going to talk about it in the in the context of science. I think that would give quite a few more of them co- comfort to actually addressing the question. So no, that would yeah. be good. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we've got a list of questions here. We'll, uh, maybe I, I'll email them in, and they'll get in on the, the agenda tonight. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I predict that exactly none of them will be asked. <laughs> if they are, though, it, it, that's, that's progress, but okay. All, All right. right. If, if they are, then the next glass of wine is on me. Excellent. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> All right, Tim, that's it for this week, but uh, thanks for uh, coming on, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Doug. Talk to you next week, and enjoy tonight's debate. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is another episode of America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. We'll see you next time.
All right, that's it for this week's America Adapts, a climate change podcast. Thanks to James Dilwell and Tim Watkins for being amazing guests on the show. Don't forget to visit the website to learn more information about the podcast and about the guest. And there's all sorts of links if you want to get this on RSS feed or if you want to listen directly from a website. Please also consider subscribing to the podcast. And if you have ideas for guests, I randomly hear from people and they have amazing ideas for guests. And some of the guests that you've heard have been just from random people contacting me. So if you have ideas, contact me at americadapt at gmail.com and if you just have comments about the podcast i would love to hear from you and i would read them on the show if you have ideas about what we should cover i will read that on the podcast so until next week this is america adapts the climate change podcast